When I first seriously got into the watch world about seven years ago, there were a few names that I kept hearing over and over again. They were the living legends, the guys that you had to know if you were going to get anywhere or actually learn anything. Luckily, I got to know a lot of them pretty early on, and today we've got a great show for you that includes two of them. First up is our guest, Mr. William Massena, who you might remember from his episode of Talking Watches back in 2015. You also might know him from his days at Time Zone or Antiquorum or Bonhams, or maybe from his spot on the jury of the Grand Prix d'Orlogerie de Genève. He's been deeply entrenched in the watch community for decades, and he's someone that I've long known and admired. Whether we're talking about watches, tailoring, French poetry, or some new restaurant, I know I'm going to come out of the conversation better for having had it. Then we've got our own editor-in-chief, Jack Forster. He's right up there with William in terms of legend status, and when we decided to have William on the show, it was a no-brainer that Jack co-host. Between the two of these guys, we've got about as much horological knowledge and firepower as anyone could ask for. And as you'll see in this episode, I just want to get as much of it out of them as possible. I'm your host, Stephen Pulverant, and this is Hodinkee Radio. This week's episode is presented by Zenith Watches. Stay tuned later in the show for my conversation with CEO Julian Tornare, where we talk about how Zenith is celebrating the 50th anniversary of the El Primero. For more, visit zenith-watches.com. So I did this, and I had seen it, but I was really impressed. And all of a sudden, he looks at me and says, what have you done? <laughs> and I go, well, I had, you know, I, I moderate on a website, I ban people. <laughs> wait, 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 okay. Because, 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 because we are actually recording, let's back up a second. Yeah, so we're talking about William joining the, what is it, the Worshipful Company of Clockmakers, of clockmakers, clockmakers. in the UK. Which, which just, just a little context, this is the uh, oldest continuously operating, I guess you would say, uh, guild of uh, in, in the city of London, or one of the oldest. I think it was, uh, I, the, I think the fan makers are older than you guys or yeah, something like that. Fan makers. Yeah, they're always in there. Yeah. Um, but like mid-1600s, I think it was, uh, it, it was incorporated. Yeah, and the Charles II, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 1632. Yeah, there it is. I'm supposed to know those things. There it is. 1632. So, and, and William, um, <clears throat> we were talking earlier, uh, we, we sort of described him as, uh, you know, a true living legend of, uh, you know, modern horology. Um, so, you know, just <laughs> just to sort of give a little context here. He's, so he's sort of like a combination of, uh, you know, the Albert Einstein and Marco Pierre White of, uh, <laughs> of, of, of horology. You know, uh, like I think that's deeply, a pretty good description, Jack. But, you know, like deeply, deeply knowledgeable, incredibly erud- erudite, and also someone who will, um, you know, figuratively rip off your head and poop down your neck and call you a syphilitic, you know, weasel-eyed, no good, idiotic bastard if you get a paddock reference number wrong. At least that's that's how that's Jack's, the kind of Jack's person you were. hot today. Yeah, no, but that's, that's, that, that was William's online persona when I was getting to know him. It depends who you are, but I would do that. I admit yeah. it. Yeah. You, it's the way you present it that, you know, I, I would rip your head off. But yeah, I wouldn't do that to a newbie. So William, uh, who's, who's been, uh, who was already a, uh, a profoundly present and terrifying figure in watch collecting uh, online when the first generation of the watch internet was, you know, going on in the late 90s and early 2000s, uh, we were talking about the fact that he has rec- recently become... No, that was like five years ago. Five years ago, become, became a member of the Worshipful Company of Clockmakers, which is one of the oldest... Professional guilds in the in the city of London. We were talking about sort of the pomp and circumstance that goes along. We got to get you into this, Jack. 
<laughs> yeah, Jack is the next one. Yeah. yeah, Jack feels like a perfect fit for I, this. I can see Jack in the gun doing his allegiance to the it's queen. It's going to be a floppy hat involved. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be a so you're allowed to, You said one of the privileges you're allowed to carry a sword? I think you're allowed to carry a sword in the city of London, and you can have Sweet. your sheeps cross um, the London Bridge. Wow. Yeah, it's a big privilege. So has, have your ships crossed the London Bridge? <laughs> I, I think they do it. I think once a year, like some of the... Uh, uh, the shorter members do that. They they go around with their sheeps and they cross it. Just to say you did it. Just yeah, I think it's yeah. part of you know having fun doing I mean, this. If you can, right? Like you kind of have to. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> All right. So one of the things I want to make sure we we get right into is you guys were both there, kind of when watches hit the internet, right? Like that's something I think today. All right, Jack. Jack, maybe. Maybe half a generation later. Yeah, but well, I think I was a few years. If you consider five years, what two thousand, Jack, you came in. Actually, the first time I remember fighting with anyone about watches on the internet was in '98. <laughs> I want to okay, say. Okay, so Jack is first generation. Yeah, and it was on, and there, there, there were no. I mean, that, I think that was was that the first year for Time Zone. Yeah, no, Time Zone is '1995. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but, there was no, there was no, you know, I mean, the watch, the the first enthusiast websites. We're starting to take off. Time Zone was a very big deal. Purists.com, which is now Purists Pro. I think they're both, they're both still around, which is kind of mind-blowing. But um, uh, the Purists came out in 2002. Right. Yeah. And we were. it was sort of like the break between uh, uh, Sigmund Freud and, his, uh, and the second generation of uh, psychiatrists. There was a lot of acrimony, and uh, you, know, you had to be either an adherent of one school or the other. Yeah, you couldn't be at both. No. So right. what, let's, so let's go back to the was, beginning. Like, so we, I think we all take it for granted since all of our careers, to some degree or another, revolve around the watch internet. And we've all kind of come up in the era of the watch internet, and many of our listeners are familiar with watches on the internet. But, like, in 1995, when Time Zone starts, like, what does watch collecting look like pre-internet? And then how does the internet kind of change things? So there was alt.orology, believe it or not. Okay. Uh, which was, I was, I was going to say, for me, the first arguments were on Usenet news groups. Yeah. So yeah. there was Usenet news groups. I bought a watch on Usenet news group for somebody I'd never met. And that was kind of people will talk, if you can call this talk on Usenets. Uh, but before that, it was just going to a store and taking a magazine and just annoying a sales guy in a store asking questions. There was nothing. There was. And the magazines were, um, you know, bunch of ads, basically. Um, and they were on the newsstands next to the model railroading and doll collecting magazines. I mean, it was just not, you know. So all the cool hobbies. Right. <laughs> I, I used yeah. to subscribe to the Italian magazines. The Italian magazines were always uh, great. They had great pictures. Uh, the Germans, too. If you spoke a bit of German, they were, they were rating cars, uh, watches that cars. Uh, it was great in, in certain way f- compared to what we had in the U.S. in English or even in French. Or they took serious – the Germans took serious criticism of watches as – you know, you, you would kind of expect this from the Germans, too. Yeah. They, 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 to them, you know, serious watch criticism had to take into account, you know, accuracy, quality of materials, performance. The Italians, on the other hand, were sort of making watch collecting look cool and look interesting, kind of, I think, before, just you know, sort you of had before the pro anybody and else. cons on, right. on, on German magazines, uh, which was uh, interesting, but, you know, it was to a very small audience. So Time Zone comes around, and Time Zone was... Um, was part of a project. Somebody in Singapore, uh, a watch dealer in Singapore, was a Rolex dealer, had the website done in 1995. And I, the kids, I guess, who did the website created a form on the back end. 
So you could go visit the website and, and then there would be like question and answer, Q&A. And it was basically a forum and they call it time zone, that forum. Uh, and that lasted about a year between 90, 95, 96, 97. And in 97, it was bombed. Somebody came and, and basically created a loop and it, they had to close, close down the forum. So uh, it was shut down. It was a Singaporean forum. And somebody called Richard Page. Some, somebody hacked it. Yes. Yeah, yeah basically. So, uh, Richard Page, who was a, a retailer in San Francisco, um, bought, bought the right to timezone.com and used it uh, to create a, uh, a forum to basically start discussion and also uh, retail his watches. So when did the first um, when did the first brand forums appear on TimeZone, and uh, when did sponsorships start to become a factor? So the first brand forum was uh, maybe in '99. I think it's the if I'm correct, I think it's the AWC forum with mm-hmm. Michael Friedberg. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think the reason is because Richard Page was an authorized AWC dealer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the sponsorship came later, maybe in 2000. The first sponsor was uh, Biver with um, no the Blanc Pain. Mm-hmm. And we told him that it would be $500 a year <laughs> until they cancel it. So <laughs> Blanc, Blanc Pain had a rate of $500. And when Jean-Claude left uh, Swatch, I think, uh, in 2005 to start Hublot, Blanc Pain canceled it. And we're like, super, that's great. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, amazing, incredible. <laughs> Can you imagine a great space for us? And... Um, and yeah, so I'm just trying to imagine any brand having a locked-in rate of five hundred dollars a year on an internet watch. Yeah. Form. Early early Hodinkee advertising, as Ben has said, was not much different than that. <laughs> yeah. It was pretty similar, yeah. you know. Yeah. <laughs> yes, for sure. I think AP got something for like five hundred or a thousand dollars. I remember. For a whole I remember year. talking to you guys about that when I yeah. you had a hilariously low rates. Yeah, it was it was pretty bad back then. Um, and and then uh, I think it's uh, Bloomline who really came to us and say, hey, I believe in product, I believe in on the internet, and uh, ask us to open a Lange forum, invite us to Basel, because we're mm-hmm. not really invited to Basel. Um, the first time I went in the booth, I thought I was maybe going to get arrested. So there's an interview out there. There's an interview out there with Gunter Blumlein, which I remember reading when it was first published. Just for real quick, just for people who don't know, can oh, you sure. tell us who Gunter Blumlein was? Oh, yeah, so Gunter Blumlein was, was basically the... Um, Architect of modern IWC, uh, JLC, and the the guy who is you know the brains behind the uh, the, the, the um, reestablishment of uh, Langenzone, yeah. um, a brilliant brilliant entrepreneur and um, someone who was unfortunately taken from us quite early by I think it was leukemia wasn't it mm-hmm. yeah yeah so October of two thousand one October of two thousand one big big shock to the community because he was he was um, one of the architects of the modern uh, watch renaissance him, you know him and. Uh, you know, people like Nicholas G. Hayek um, and, and Jean-Claude Beaver. Yeah. Um, you know, and a lot of people have forgotten Bloomline. We're, you know, William and I are old enough to remember when uh, he was a major, major force to be reckoned with. Yeah. And the, the interview, I recall, uh, he actually talked about the Internet and how he felt it was the wave of the future. And the person who interviewed him said to him, yeah, well, Mr. Bloomline, do you, do, you read, do you read the forums? Do you read TimeZone? Do you read ThePurists.com? And he said, well, no, uh, you know, but my uh, uh, secretary... Uh, tells me when there are interesting articles, and she'll print out the web page so I can read it. No, you're wrong. No, that's um, 
That's Stern. Are you? Sh- I, that's Philip Stern. I'm a hundred percent sure it's Bloomline. I have a feeling it's Philip Stern. I, five five bucks says. It's <laughs> Let's. All right, we're gonna try to find the interview and we'll link it up with the answer in the show notes. Uh, I have a feeling it's Philip Stern, and I interviewed him, and he said that to me. Are you sure? I have a feeling, yes, but it's a long time ago. So uh, no, I, well, listen, I, <laughs> my memory's not what it used to be either. But five bucks says it's blue. But, but the the Swiss study was a fade, and they still yeah. think it's a fade. They think, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, the internet is gonna go. It's gonna be gone. Of in course, five years. watches yeah. will still be there, yeah, and the but, internet will be gone. Yeah, yeah that's. The, I mean, Stephen, that's the that's that's the relevant point. Like you know, I mean, that someone whether it was Stern or or Bloomline, uh, you know, whether the, the fact that someone very very senior in the Swiss Swiss watch industry. Even that long ago, you know, their way of interacting with the internet was to have their secretary print out an article so they could read it is sort of hilarious. I'm not sure things are that different. It's the same. Uh, they're not that different. Yeah. It, it's it's amazing that it's the same. But I think that they do believe, you know, it's it goes back to the quartz. It goes back to the fact that they did nothing for quartz. Right. And then it came back to them. Basically, by doing nothing, mechanical came back. There's a boomerang. And they're like, well, look, we did nothing, but we're still on top. Mm-hmm. And I think they think the same about the internet or anything else. Small watches is like, let's do nothing. And at one point, we'll be in fashion again. So, William, just to, you know, again, uh, I mean, Stephen and I both know you, and I've known you for, you know, 20 20 plus years. But if we back up a little bit, you know, for the the folks who don't know, how did you get into watches? When did, why why did watches become such a big part of your life? And how, and this is a big question, how did you become such a, a major, major, major figure uh, in the sort of foundation of the watch, watch internet, and uh, and and become you know kind of a both respected and feared person on Time Zone in the early late '90s and early 2000s. I mean, people were respected you, but they were scared of you. So I was a banker. Uh, I was a collector already, mm. and when I joined Time Zone in 1995, I was just a member like anybody else. Right. But I think to to a point, what distinguished me from others was the fact that I was willing to criticize what I was buying. I think a lot of people they in the early days, they would go on the internet and see, oh, look at my great Omar Piguet railock. I'm so happy I have it and this, and it's so great. And they will um, basically you know, make a huge contribution about a watch that they love, and it would be very biased. And I, would, I was one of the first guys to come around and say, I bought that AP and I hate it, and this is why. <laughs> and, 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 and basically, the fact that you own the watch and you will give a criticism of the watch was so unheard of that it really... Uh, made me look as somebody that wasn't nice, especially to the brand that was trying to demonize me, saying, this guy, you know, he's not a nice guy. Um, And it wasn't that I wasn't a nice guy. I love watches. Uh, It was just the fact that I was willing to say, I bought this thing and I made a mistake, or I bought this thing and it's not up to the standard I wanted. You were also willing to say, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, probably 10 years of things you've said to people on the internet. But you were also willing to say, you know, you're an idiot for thinking that. It's not true. I think people think... It's not so much that I I insulted people for what they thought. It's more that I... um, Insult's the wrong word. Yeah, I wouldn't wouldn't call somebody an idiot. I would call a statement idiotic. But I wouldn't call somebody an idiot. <laughs> that uh, a, that's, that's an important that's, distinction. That's a, There's a huge it's, difference. It's a, yeah. dis, it's a distinction which a lot of people are unlikely to appreciate. Yeah, but I take but it's your a point. real distinction. But, but I, I, and actually, I'm think I'm harsher on smart people than on idiots, uh, because to a certain way, you know, you have to. Uh, and and I think the, the major issue I have on the internet, and I still have it to today, is people are in love with brands. Whether you go on Instagram or on. on on forums or on discussion groups. People are in love with brands. And I have a very hard time with this. I'm in love with watches. And sometimes some brands don't do the right watch. So 
uh, people take this as a personal insult when you tell them, well, that watch is not to the standard of that brand. And and I I, I don't think I... It's like you've told them that their daughter is ugly. <laughs> no, it's not. It, it's more... It's not. Jack, you're really bad. I... I I, first of all, you have to realize that. No, I'm saying that's that's the that's the degree. Uh, you, you see the same degree of emotional commitment to brands as brands. Yeah. It's if you tell somebody your daughter is not tall enough and not beautiful enough or not to the aesthetic standards of today to be a top model, and that person will tell you, "My daughter is going to be the next top model," and you're like, "I'm sorry, she's five two, and you know she's not exactly looking like what they're looking for today in magazines." And, and that's basically, mm-hmm. uh, you okay. get to a point where somebody has to tell you the truth. And unfortunately, on the internet, it was me. I mean, on, on, on internet forums, watch forums, it was me. I was the guy who would say, I'm sorry, but that's not the right watch. If you buy FP Journal, you don't buy this watch. At least not as a first watch. And people take this very personal. They, you insult their watch, you think then you're insulting their whole family. Well, I mean... Uh Fine watchmaking at the level you're talking about, FB, Jordan, Paddock, Audemars Piguet, these are you know, three brands that you've mentioned. We haven't gotten into Omega Rolex yet. But you know these are brands that require often a significant amount of financial sacrifice in order for people to acquire and that are objects of connoisseurship in a way that I'm not sure that people nowadays necessarily um, appreciate, you know, people just coming in uh, to you know, the watch enthusiast world. I don't know if people necessarily understand the extent to which there was partisanship and a high degree of very, very obsessive, detail-oriented connoisseurship about these things. And I don't know that it's the same today. It doesn't it doesn't feel as granular to me. I, I think it's changing. But uh, if you go on Instagram, you can see that a lot of people are still doing it. Yeah. And, and the thing is, you don't have the interaction because they can edit themselves out, basically. Yeah. Uh, but... Uh, Instagram is killing this in a certain way that people just show their watchers and you criticize, they just swipe it out. Um, but, uh, and it's fine. I'm fine with this. Uh, I, I just think it creates it creates a generation of people that are huge fan, crazy hardcore fan of brands that don't really deserve it. Right. And I'm really talking about brands. I'm not talking right. about watchers. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's that's something interesting is you see people who are, you know, not to name any names, but whose accounts are essentially, you know, modified versions of brand names and who are dedicated to collecting one sort of thing. And it's it's very clear that, like, I, in most cases, can't imagine what that brand could possibly do to shake that sort of allegiance. And, you know, I think, William, I'm probably more like you in that, you know, I... I there are a handful of brands I, I really like and who I, I feel like I want to support, but for the most part... I'm more interested in in a good product than a brand that makes good products. Yeah, the um, one of the most interesting remarks you've made just in this conversation is uh, I like watches, I don't like brands. I do. Which it, is not which is not I like watches, I dislike brands, but it's you're 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 loyal to good design and good technique and not to brands as such. Correct. I like watches and I like watchmakers. I the brand is kind of in between, and I, I don't dislike brands, but I'm not a huge fan of brands. Right. I don't worship brands like so many today do. You buy a Patek, it seems you have to to use it as an iconic image that you have to worship every day. And the truth is, every brand that you can, any brand that you can name, has done you know some stuff that is not great. Absolutely. You know, and it's and it should be okay to say that, but somehow it's not. 
Yeah. So, so back in 95, when you were getting into this, what what were some of the brands that were hot? Like, what was what was the community, quote unquote, like, what was the community's taste like? Like, what were people into? What was big so, in 95? So the biggest one was obviously, and these are discussions, right? Uh, so it's Rolex versus Omega. Yeah. This has been going on for 25 years on the internet. It hasn't changed. Uh, we saw today with the news, you know, it's yep. Rolex versus Omega. Um, the second thing was all about uh, the tourbillons from Frank Mueller. I mean, they were oh. very hot in 1995. The tourbillon imperial was very important watch. They were selling high. You couldn't get a discount. It was like this big thing. And I mean, up- lest, lest we forget, Frank Mueller you know, developed a reputation because he was a brilliant watchmaker. He was. He's still a brilliant. I'm sure he's still a brilliant watchmaker. Um, but And he was. At the time, he was the thing. Um, then you had, a little bit later, you had, so we're talking 95, like really 95, this is the discussion. Frank Mueller, Rolex versus Omega. It's not very sophisticated. Um, a few people are talking about the offshore. Okay. Uh, and the reason is the size. Yeah. Uh, there was starting to be discussion about the size of the watches, the offshore. I remember I wrote something about the uh, Portuguese, the, the, the anniversary Portuguese at the time. Mm-hmm. The size was important. Um, Panerai was coming. Well, they weren't out yet because they came a little bit later yes, in '88. Yeah, but this is this is this is another interesting, you know, um, inflection point. This is actually pre Richemont Group. Mm-hmm. It is. Um, so '98, '97, '98. Um, Pre-Richmond, in Italy, you could buy those pre-Richmond uh, um, Panerai, so people will yeah. fly to Italy and get them, and uh, we'll talk about it on the internet. They were like 2000 bucks. Um, uh, so that was a discussion. Then, maybe starting in 98, there was a big push uh, towards Lange. Lange became big, especially in the U.S., because you had only one retailer, and that was Cellini in the U.S., so everybody thought that Lange were great, but couldn't we have access to it if you live in the West Coast or in, in Texas uh, or anywhere else but New York, you couldn't see a Lange. So that was a big discussion on time zone. Um, and then you started to have the um, Roger Dubuis guys and Daniel Roth, especially with the Asian crisis of 98. Yeah, yeah. And um, <clears throat> Roger Dubuis was Mr. Roger Dubuis. The master uh, of uh, you know clock and vintage watch restoration, who had decided to hang out his own shingle with some financing, and uh, produce his own movements, and uh, they made a huge, huge splash. I mean, it was all people could talk about, you know, on a certain yeah. on a certain level. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. And, and Time Zone had really two, uh, three main people that were really pushing the Time Zone thing, and that was Richard Page, who owned it and uh, pushed maybe his brands, but also pushed the discussion to bring more people in because he was thinking about at least selling time zone or monetizing time zone already. And then you had uh, Ward Audits, who was, uh, who is uh, an amazing polymath and uh, a self-taught uh, watchmaker. And so let's talk about, uh, let's talk about Walt for a second. He's the guy, who, Walt Odette, son of Clifford Odette, the famous Broadway playwright, uh, and inherited his father's uh, uh, way with words, to say the least. This is the guy who essentially invented the uh, internet technical watch review. And he did it on time zone. Um, I still refer back to his articles to this day. Um, and he was a this this was a guy who, when he wanted a platinum see-through case back for one of his Blancpain watches, just went down to his basement and turned one on his lathe. 
and you know then posted a story about it saying that he was never going to work with platinum again because it was a goddamn nightmare um but you know like nobody's today nobody's doing that you know um and he was he, he was capable of taking apart uh an IWC Mark 12 uh swapping in a higher quality JLC movement uh regulating it and writing a five part story about it that uh you know reads like a a cliffhanger detective novel you know really really phenomenal stuff and what i want to ask you about specifically is do you remember the, uh, the storm that erupted? The Explorer one. When he tore down an Explorer. So, Walt. So tell us about that. Uh, this was in the uh, summer of 98. Walt did a review of the Explorer one, the Rolex Explorer one, the modern version, obviously. And he wrote a very critical review of the watch. It wasn't complimentary. No, it wasn't. <laughs> uh, it was very well written and it had, it had very good points. And I think that's when Rolex realized that something was going on with the internet. Uh, and that created a storm um, in a small scale, but everybody talked about it for months. Uh, I think Rolex got involved at one point. I wasn't part of management, exactly. I was kind of around the circle, but I wasn't really in the center of it. So I'm not exactly sure what happened, but um, they invited Walt, who didn't want to go to uh, Geneva, who... Uh, Walt lives in uh, San Francisco, or at least then lived in San Francisco, and he didn't want to get too much involved with them. And but he created a big, big story because nobody liked the fact that the Explorer One wasn't up to the standard of a thirty-five hundred dollar watch. I mean, this was also the first time uh, um, that I can remember, and I remember when that story came out. And you, you know, I mean, I read it with my with my mouth open like everybody else. This was really the first time that somebody had taken apart a Rolex and, uh, you know, looked at the movement and said, okay, from an engineering standpoint, from a watchmaking standpoint, from a craft standpoint, this is what I think is good, what I think is bad. And the only, you know, the, the most sort of trenchant criticisms that I read of that piece in retrospect say, well, you know, Walt came from, he loved the high, high end. You know, he loved Paddock. Uh, he was a big advocate of Chopard when they first came out with LUC. Um, and he was bringing expectations to what's essentially a tool watch that were not necessarily appropriate to that watch, to that movement. Um, and he did actually say at the end of the review, you put it on a timing machine and it shows, you know, I mean, almost zero beat error, great, for, you know, great stability, um, performed well. But, uh, you know, you open up the back and you don't see what you expect to see if you're a guy who's into Paddock, uh, you know, Vacheron. Um, high like end the finishing. Yeah, yeah. So do you do you feel that was uh, to some extent, uh, in retrospect, a relevant perspective? I, I, I think it kind of showed uh, what bias towards the the Lange. You know, at the time he was big time a Lange guy. He yeah. really loved his eighteen fifteen, and I think he looked at it and he was like, "Oh, this is not up to the standards." But that was a three thousand dollar watch, an right. extremely reliable watch. It wasn't. Uh, it, it was a great review, but in certain way, he kind of showed uh, what bias towards the you know. Uh, finishing rather than the uh, engineering. Yeah. So you, you said that, that that was kind of a moment where you think maybe Rolex realized that something was going on with the internet. When do you think the industry kind of at large maybe started to notice that the internet was, was something they needed to pay attention to? Um, much later. <laughs> Very much later. I, when like you not got, yet. When, when, when you when basically when bloggers came in. Yeah. When when I saw how they were uh, opening their arms to bloggers, uh, I, I I really thought I would get arrested at Basel. Like I really thought that at one point somebody would come and say you're fraud. You're not allowed to be in the Basel booth here. You're under arrest and you're going with the Swiss police somewhere. Um, and I really believe the Swiss starting to believe it when 
there were bloggers and they're like, okay, we have to control this thing. Right. And I think it's more a con question of containment than a question of embracing. Yeah. I don't think they were very much into it anyway. And I don't think they're still into it. Well, that's I also, I'm also curious about your particular experience because you, you went to school in Switzerland. You, in, in some ways, grew up in Switzerland, right? right? So you were kind of around this your, your whole life. What was it like to finally then be at Basel World and kind of feel like maybe an, an insider in this world? Um, I, well, I went to Basel, so I started going to Basel. I went to Basel once when I was a child. Okay. I mean, 14 years old, and, you know, I used my uh, school ID to go in, and no. I said I was doing a project for school. And what year was this one? Uh, I think 84, 85. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then I've been continuously going to Basel since 95. Okay. Uh and um, in 1985, it was uh, basically a table like this. And, you know, you have two chairs and <laughs> uh, a display, a little display case and something like you have in the Undinki office. No, uh, no marble <laughs> fountains no, 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 and no. It wasn't uh, neon signs. And it would be AP and you have Jean-Claude Biver behind it. And, you know, it would show you his watch and you'd be ordering them. Okay. Um, but when I went in 95, I really felt like an outsider. It was much different than today. Press was not really welcome. Press was, yeah, okay, you're allowed to have a press badge, and you'll have to ask authorization to take pictures outside in the window, but there weren't really press meetings and things like that. Um, I always felt really like an outsider until 2005, like 15 years ago, let's say, when they started really making press appointments, and we were really considered, especially the internet, um, I think people like Joe Thompson had access because they were representing the industry. Uh, they were with jewelry um, magazines, so they were more. They had more access than us, who was just pure watch guy from the internet. Uh, the anti-Colombo time zone in two thousand six, and that helped us. When anti-Colombo a time zone, he helped us get access because all of a sudden we're owned by an auction house and the biggest one in the world at the time. And that gave us access. Biggest, biggest one in the world. Biggest watch specialist. Watch yeah, specialist. I mean, at the time, time zone, in 2005, 2006, it was the peak of Anticom. And Anticom bought time zone right there when uh, the Japanese had bought Anticom, the Japanese uh, company had bought Anticom, and then Anticom had bought time zone. Um, that's when, you know, things became a little bit easier for us in terms of access. And now a look at this week's sponsor. I'm here with Zenith CEO Julian Tornare. Julian, how is Zenith celebrating the 50th anniversary of the El Primero? Usually brands, they celebrate their own anniversary or they celebrate a watch, a model anniversary. We celebrate a movement. El Primero has become such a legend, such an iconic movement that we had to do something big. I'm actually in New York right now, uh, part of the world tour. We are celebrating the anniversary in 15 different cities. And we talk about, uh, of course, the El Primero, but we also talk about Charles Vermeau, the guy who saved the El Primero in 1974 and uh, who took uh, an amazing uh, place in the history of the brand. Yeah, that's a great story. We actually talked about it in a previous episode. But I'm wondering, what makes the El Primero such an icon with collectors today? Sure. I mean, um, El Primero in 69 was a huge uh, revolution and, and, and nobody believed it could be possible. They made such a statement and today it's still probably the most famous movement in the watch industry. We are not the most famous brand. We don't have the most famous model, but we have the most famous movement. And this is something which is a great asset for the brand and we need to build from that. Which makes me wonder, what are we going to see next? I believe Zenit is the perfect mix between having a long history, 154 years, authentic, because 100% of the watches you can buy at Zenit, they have a Zenit movement. 
But it doesn't mean we should repeat the past. We should create the future. So yes, we will come with a 1,000 of a second chronograph based on the El Primero. But El Primero is everywhere. El Primero is in our pilot watch. El Primero is in the DeFi line with the new El Primero 21. And we will continue to develop new ideas, creativity, uh, but we will stay in line with who we are. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Julian. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for welcoming me here. It's always a pleasure to be this beautiful city of New York and to spend time with you guys. For more, visit zenith-watches.com. All right, let's get back to the show. During that period, roughly 99 to 2004, 2005, I was a moderator on uh, um, the purist.com. The purist. So what did, did, what, did, what did you guys at Time Zone think of us? Did you think we were a bunch of, you know, <laughs> defeat snobs? Uh, no, I... Uh, I'm, uh, you know, there's a whole backstory behind the purists and how the purists yeah, was born. Course. I don't want to get into that today because yeah, yeah. it would yeah. take another two-hour show. But well, there was a schism. There was, there was yeah. a schism. That's yeah. the word to say. Um, and uh, to a certain point, it looked like the purists were the high-end guys and uh, the money guys, and Time Zone was the uh, Omega Rolex crowd. And I was kind of proud uh, to be on the Rolex Omega crowd, especially that the Patek Forum was very strong at the time. Yeah, yeah. And I was yeah. a moderator of the Patek Forum. Um, I, 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 first, I, I think I always looked at the purest is the more the merrier. If this competition is good for everybody, I don't think that was really true for the purest. But uh, <laughs> I, I looked at it as okay, it's great. Uh, we are having competition and it's good. Uh, at least there are more people, and a lot of my friends were on the purest. And yeah, and a lot of mine were on time zone. I exactly. was, I, I mean, I was active on time zone. But it was, it was pretty rare to have somebody that was on both time zone and yeah. the purest. You, you had to the, choose your battles. I remember um, uh, my first experience uh, with actually working on watches myself was thanks to the time zone watch school, which Walt Odets wrote the con- uh, content for and took a lot of the pictures for. Yes, uh, we we did it like maybe fifteen years ago, yeah. ten years ago, but uh, recently. Yes, yeah, recently. Uh, somebody told me uh, recently that time zone looks like CompuServe nineteen ninety five, and I kind of agree with that. Uh, well, but you know what? So so I I took the time zone watch school version one with Walt's pictures and content, mm-hmm. and the movement the the uh, the, the movement was. Uh, a Fontamellon FM97, which you, you know has, has long since been out of. Uh, yeah, out of we use ETA now. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, well, you can get those. I think with the 6547 we use. Yeah. Um, so the the Timeline Watch School still has um, about 15 to 20 people on um, per semester. Mm-hmm. We do fairly well with this. It's fifty dollars, uh, and you can take a class. And now there's six different levels. Uh, it's not it's not the same as they say HSNY. But if you are if you live in the middle of nowhere, America, and you want to learn about uh, watchmaking, it's a good way to do it. I mean, for me, you know, I was in graduate school when I did the time zone uh, watch school, and you know, I didn't have a pot to piss in, so there was no way that I could participate in the discourse about you know what it's like to have your own Rolex, your own Panic. I mean, let um, your own Omega, but I could spend fifty dollars, and I and you know I would get by parcel post uh, watch tools and a by gosh genuine Swiss movement uh, you know to work on and um, you know oils and lubricants and the whole nine yards and you know for less than a hundred bucks you could have an experience that it would have been impossible to have even five years ago you could really you could take apart a movement 
um, and put it back together, and you would never look at watches again the same way after doing that even once. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was it was phenomenal, and it was part of the democratization, I think, of uh, in a good way uh, of uh, connoisseurship about watches. Because, okay, like you don't have two thousand dollars, three thousand dollars, four thousand dollars to spend on a watch, but if you've got fifty bucks, you can really learn something about watchmaking, and you can be part of this community in a uh, in a really really meaningful way. And in some ways, a more meaningful way than if you had money to spend on a watch. And it still exists, and we're still having a few people take the class every year. Oh, every semester. And we have six different levels now. Six? Yeah. Are you up to minute repeaters yet? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it stops at chronograph. Maybe. Yeah. I don't even know. Yeah. I took only class 101, I have to admit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Le- level, level six is a repeater, and it costs $27,000. Well, you know, we, we, had, um, we did a CD of different minute repeaters. So we created a CD where we had recorded Time Zone, uh, created a CD where they recorded a few minute repeaters. And we had, like, you could listen for 45 minutes of different mini repeaters. For 45 minutes? Yeah, so basically. Jeez. <laughs> we got to find that somewhere. Yeah, if somebody has Where it, is that? Yeah, if somebody has peak, that, let know. us know. Uh, yeah. That's wild. That's like peak watch nerd. Yes. Um, uh, one, one of the things you said is, is that the divide between time zone and purists kind of was the divide between the, the sort of, like, classic tool watch crowd and the, the high-end crowd. But... That's one of the things I've always found interesting about your collecting personally is that you do kind of bridge that gap. You know, on one side, I know you have a, a pretty serious collection of, you know, vintage Rolex, uh, vintage military watches. But on the other side, you're collecting Jorn and Debitune and uh, Moser and those kinds of folks. What What is it about those sort of two categories that you find appealing? What What things that they share and what things that make them different? Oh, I like them all. <laughs> I have clocks. I have pocket watches. I have I have everything. I, I love I love watches. I really do. Um, there, there's a movie, a true for movie, the man who loved woman. And I don't know if yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. And it's about this guy who just loved women. You know, it's it doesn't matter the redhead, blondes, brunette, and it's life after six p.m. is to be with women. My life after six p.m. is to be with watches, and I like them in all shape and colors. My favorite weird ass thing that I. Uh, um I'm aware that you were interested in and bought at auction is, uh, it was a couple of years ago now, I think, um, there was a uh, timing device uh, that had been made uh, for the Swiss police uh, that was designed to start and stop surveillance tapes for wiretapping. I did not buy it. You didn't buy it. I, I, I managed- who's, who's, who, who was the maker? Uh, Patek. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and this Patek, is the kind of stuff okay. I like. Patek Philippe surveillance tape timer. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. I'm kind of into that. For for uh, Swiss spies. I'm pretty into that. I really want to buy it. Uh, but I made a mistake. You, I actually mentioned asked, it. you asked me not to not to write about it. <laughs> yes. But I made a mistake. I mentioned it on uh, Instagram. Ah. Before it came classic, out. Classic yeah, that was, mistake. That was a classic mistake. And, and I didn't, I, 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 I bid it on it. Uh, it was an anticom. Yeah. And I didn't get it. And I it went to a Chinese uh, client. Uh, I know that. Uh, for crazy money. Crazy money, I'm like sure. $20,000. That was way above what I would pay for such a device. I mean, uh, but can you imagine what that would go for in today's climate? I mean, a, a, a surveillance device made by Patek Philippe. Yes. I think, I think some people in this country would love to use it. Um, <laughs> 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 but yeah, I, I, this is well, a kind sure, of I stuff. Sure, I violated like. your civil rights, but it is with Patek Philippe, eh? <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, I like, I like, I like a bit of everything. I have, yeah. um, I have 
uh, Seiko uh, timers from the Olympics of 64. I have uh, GLC Atmos. I have pocket watches from Breguet. Uh, I like them all. I, 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 it's kind of sad, but in certain ways, it, it proves what I said before. I, I, I like watches. I don't like brands. So, I have a question for you, uh, William. Um, having uh, seen you active on the forums on Time Zone for many years, what's the, what's the harshest thing you remember ever saying to someone about a watch? Um, oh, this I have no idea. I'm sure somebody will. I ask this just out of morbid curiosity. Will send me an email and tell me you, you once said this about my watch. That I, is I, nothing. I, I, I think, I, I, think I'm, I can be very harsh on a watch. Yeah. Um, but usually I'm harsh on a watch that I've owned. That is one very important thing. I'm rarely criticizing things I've never owned because I don't know the piece at the end of the day. I, I'm harsh on things I have owned. Uh, if I have something, and sometimes I'm harsh on something I still own. So I'm kind of, you know, it's I'm kind of like saying bad things about my own kids. Um, it's uh, I'm, that's the way I, I roll. I, I don't like to criticize stuff that I've never owned. Have you ever found yourself? Um, I mean, in, in the decades and decades that you've been around watches and watch collecting, is is are, are there pieces that you've experienced where? your feelings about them haven't changed over the decades. You thought it was a magnificent accomplishment right at the outset, and you still think it is. There are things I'm buying today that I bought 25 years ago that I'm still buying. I, I, I think the Omega Spinmaster is a classic example of something that, I mean, I've been collecting for nearly 30 years, and I'm still buying today. I mean, it's kind of, it's, it sounds silly, but I'm still buying Omega Spinmasters. I'm still buying Rolex. I Not as much as I did before because they're way too expensive today, but... Uh, if something I really like and I really want, I will buy it. Um, I, I'm more a tool At the end of the day, I'm much more of a tool guy, tool watches guy than uh, a high-end finishing guy. Uh, I start to like more modern than vintage also because I think vintage is kind of overpriced. Uh, but at the end of the day, I'm a $3,000 kind of guy. So with that in mind, what, what do you think is a watch that's under $3,000, a vintage watch under $3,000. Or actually, you know what? Let's say it can be a modern watch too. What's a watch under $3,000 that you think maybe people are sleeping on? Something they should take a look at. I, I Modern or vin- modern, you say? Either, either way. I, I, for some reason, I recommend to everybody the 39mm no-date Rolex. Uh, it's a $5,000 watch. Uh, you know the one in all the colors. The, yeah, the Oyster Perpetual. The Oyster Perpetual. Yeah. It's almost almost six, I believe. Almost six, um, but I, I, you get six thousand dollars worth of watches, hands down. I mean, it's it's a no brainer uh, at, at this price range. I think it's a no brainer. It's a watch that can go with anything. You can choose it in so many different colors. Whatever you know, you want it in weird color, gray wine, get it in that color. You want a blue, get it in blue. You want gray, get it in gray, white. Grape. They have grape. a grape that's dial. It. That's the color, grape. I, it, it's, it's that's what's wrong with the world. There are not enough grape dial Rolex yeah, out there. I, but <laughs> if you want to be original, if you want to be the guy with a grape, wine, a grape dial, buy that. Um, I, I, to me, it's the best $6,000 you can buy. It's like talking about investment. I think that's an investment. I hate that word. I hate to use that word with watches. But I think that putting $6,000 towards a watch like this that you know you're going to enjoy every day, that you can wear with a suit, with jeans, whatever, that's the watch to buy for one one watch guy. Why do you hate to use the word investment with watches? Because watches are not investments. Because I'm a banker. Because <laughs> because, <laughs> I, I, because I know what an actual investment is. Because they don't asking. give you dividends. Because... 
uh, because they are the whim of fashion and Instagram, uh, because watches are not investments. Because we've been lucky in the last 20 years that they've been going up in price, but it doesn't mean that the next 20 years they will. I have a very hard time with this. Actually, kind of my fight now is to fight that conception that uh, I think everybody's trying to push, especially brands and dealers, that watches are an investment. They're not an investment. Watches are something that you can enjoy, that you should wear, that may go up in value, but that's kind of the bonus. Uh, but it's not an investment. It's not. A house may be an investment. Uh, bonds are investments. Stocks are investments. But not watches. William, when you and I were first active on the watch internet back in the 90s, a Patek Philippe Calatrava was a five, maybe $6,000 watch. It's now a $22,000 watch. And I'm pretty sure it's the same watch. Retail. I Re- mean, retail. Uh, yeah. put it this way. The 3919, which is uh, the Clou de Paris, Obnet Bezel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. your average. Yellow gold. Yellow like. gold. Uh, so that's a 33 millimeter watch mm-hmm. uh, with a 215 movement inside, you know, the manual wind. Which we, is we a, reviewed that on the purists in white gold a million years ago. Yeah, I, I'm sure you, I mean, this is like the classic 1991 watch that you would buy from Patek Philippe that did advertising on this. So this is a 30-year-old watch. Holy smokes, I'm, I'm sorry, I just, I just re- remembered that was one of the first watch reviews I ever wrote. Um, I wonder if it's still online. Uh, you, well, you should put a link on we'll it. We'll find it, we'll link it up. <laughs> um, so that watch uh, in 1991 was, I can tell you the price, it was around eight grand. Right. Retail right. in a store. So you buy this eight grand today. I'm sure you can sell it ten, maybe ten thousand dollars because it's thirty three millimeter, and it has a hobnail bezel and it has a two fifteen movement. Uh, Patek, if you're listening to this, change the two fifteen movement. Uh, it's a shame. Um, but I, ten thousand dollars, eight thousand dollars, thirty years is that an investment? No. No. Okay. That's uh, a watch that basically has reduced in value about forty percent. Um, but saying, oh, look, the Patek of today, if you buy it, it's $22,000 or $25,000. Well, first of all, it's a different watch. It has a different color. It has a different dial. It has a different movement. Most likely, it has a 315 or a 324. Uh, you cannot compare. You're comparing Apple and Oranges. What do you got against the movement? The 215? Yeah. It's a tiny little thing. I mean, when you're Patek Philippe, you should have a high-end grade chronometer movement, mm-hmm. manual wind, simple three hands. Uh, the 215 is um, despicable for a brand like Patek. I think that today, when you look at Lange, when you look at Lange, when you look at a small company like Laurent Ferrier, and your Patek Philippe, you're like, we're coming with the 215? It's like, we're ridiculous. Bringing a knife to a, a gunfight. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a small movement. 20, I think, what, 20? Four millimeter. Uh, I'm remembering uh, ten, 10 lines thereabouts. There's, there's a reason why the 5196 has a, a solid back and not an open back, and that's the fact that the movement is so ridiculously small. Interesting. I like the 3919 though. I, I do too. I, I you know as a watch I, taken as a whole. I, I do too. I, I it's the, the design itself is great. Yeah. The movement. Uh, Kara wears one every once in a while. Her uh, her dad had one, has one, and uh, which sad. she's basically stolen. Yeah, I basically. Think. Nice move, CB. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think with Jack, one of the things Jack was getting at is price increases, right? 
I, I assume, Jack. Is yeah. that, am I right there? I mean, you, you know, one of my sort of standard riffs in, um, I mean, the good old days were neither good nor old, but, uh, you know, the, I mean, a, a family physician in the United States makes average salary around 150000 a year. And, you know, uh, at that salary, if a really nice watch from Switzerland is fourth, I mean, high end, Vacheron paddock, Audemars Piguet, um, and what have you. You know, it's the, it's it's you can you can save up a little bit, and you can buy your you know you can buy your one nice watch, and you uh, don't feel like an idiot for having sacrificed a little bit to get it, and you know you're going to wear it for the rest of your life. Um, but when it's a twenty thousand dollar watch, uh, that means that uh, it means giving up things that you really don't feel like you can give up. Um, the- starting a family, buying a house. Maybe getting a second car, maybe starting to save for your kids, you know, college education. It becomes becomes more problematic, and you know, William, I just I just feel like there were so many of us around in the late '90s and early 2000s. It didn't seem unachievable, you know, uh, if you were if you were just a, you know doing okay as a lawyer, doing okay as an engineer, doing okay as an architect, doing okay as a family physician, you know, not making you know, a million plus a year doing complicated neurovascular surgery. You, you know, you, you, were, you were part of this. You could be part of this world. And you, almost without anyone noticing, that entire demographic has gone away. They've been priced out of the game. When, when I was running Anticom, we sold a watch, um, a 6543, which is a Milgauss. Uh, Milgauss had two reference, 6541 and 6543. The rare reference is 6543. Uh, we sold a Milgauss 6543, turned tropical, uh, with box and papers. And uh, that watch came from Mexico, and it was owned by a Mexican TV repairman who bought it in the 50s on a layaway plan for two years. Now, this guy bought the watch, and every, and, and every week, every month, and he kept all the receipt. He bought it on layaway. He kept all the receipt for two years, and he bought the watch, and he wore it from uh, the late 50s to uh, the early 2000s, I guess, and he passed away, and his daughter... Uh, his daughter gave us the watch at Anticoam and we sold it. Uh, and that was maybe 10 years ago and we sold it for maybe $100,000. Um, and that basically paid for the education of his grandkids. Uh, today, you cannot do this. Today, uh, a, a TV, well, I don't know if this still exists, but somebody who repairs TVs, I don't think can afford a, a Milgauss, which is a, a $7,500 watch. That would be years of saving, uh, and, and that's that's a major problem. The, the major problem is there were tool watches, and today they're no longer tool watches; they are luxury watches. Only one hundred and twenty dollars yeah. a month with a firm. <laughs> <laughs> do you do you think that's you know? There's lots of talk about the problems that the watch industry faces from things like you know smartwatches and iPhones and whatever. But do you think that it's also a problem that? there are fewer and fewer sort of like quote unquote entry level products to get new customers interested yeah it's a luxury product today it is you're trying to make a statement i think a lot of people like vintage because vintage make less of a statement than than luxury modern watches modern watches you're making a, a statement i become i belong to this tribe i'm a rolex guy i'm a uh, I'm a Vacheron guy. You belong to a tribe and your luxury product, and it's you're making a statement. Uh, I think that 30 years ago, that wasn't the case. 30 years ago, you bought a Milgauss because you worked around TVs and you want to make sure that your watch was going to be able to withstand uh, magnets, I guess. Um, that It's very different. 
today you want a tool watch, you buy an Apple watch. Yeah. You know, what, that, that kind of gets uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask you, which is, you know, when you did your Talking Watches episode a couple years ago, you talked about you love the Beta 21. And one of the reasons you gave for loving the Beta 21 is that it represents this kind of particular, I guess maybe balance in, in the watch industry that when the watch industry comes under threat or under fire or uh, has a period of crisis, it's the things that come immediately after that that are the best and the most interesting. Do you think that the watch industry today is producing at its best, or do you think that's yet to come, or do you think it's maybe past? I think the watch industry is producing interesting things, yeah. Uh, interestingly enough, I don't think it's the Swiss watch industry. I think it's uh, people outside of Switzerland that are doing it. I think the Seikos, I think the Nomos. Um, and I think maybe some of the independents are doing things that are very interesting. But I think the major guys, the big groups, are not. They're not responding. And everybody else around them are. Uh, but I don't see really the Swatch Group or Richmond uh, or Patek to a certain extent to answer that big challenge is coming forward. Uh, and uh, But I see smaller companies. And I think the trend will continue because technology is allowing this. They, the smaller guys' voice is being heard now. Um, and they will be able to survive because of this. Um, but the industry itself is not. In Switzerland, it's not. The big guys are not. Interesting. I mean, pe- people who listen to this show regularly will know this is one of my favorite topics to talk about. And at some point, I'll get around, I guess, to writing that big award-winning story about it, maybe one of these days. Yeah. But uh, I had a conversation with someone maybe maybe two years ago now, somebody in the industry who I won't name, uh, and we were talking about the trend toward toward vintage-inspired modern watches. And his his fear was that if all you're doing is recreating old things, where do the new ideas come from? And what happens when that trend toward loving things that look old goes away? Because when when you can no longer design by just looking back at your archive, you will have trained a whole generation of watch designers to not be creative and to and not think for themselves. And, and, and a I, whole generation of consumers not to look for creativity. Yeah, and I wonder what you think. I would make it even uh, more challenging to you is I, I, I think uh, that um, they're doing this trend, but they're not doing it right. I think that's mm. the interesting thing is they're doing this um, uh, revival watchers or whatever they call it, um, uh, new old uh, you know design, uh, but they're not doing it right. It's like there's always something that is wrong with them. You're looking at those things and they're out of date or there's, they're off in, in certain ways. It's kind of, I found it the lazy way of doing it. Um, but I agree. Uh, and I'm the first one with uh, Messina Lab. I did a watch that is very 1940s in certain ways. I kind of copied a 1940s design. Uh, um, but I, I, it's very hard. You, or you are Max Busser and you do stuff that is out of your imagination and you don't care what people think, or you end up doing things that has already exist for the last 40 years. Uh, but I think the, the key thing is do it right. Do, like, make a, a vintage-looking watch, make a movement that fits that vintage-looking watch. Don't make, you know, don't put a small movement in there, or make it without a date because it was supposed to be without a date. 
Watch, um, watch designers seem to struggle to stop themselves from adding that one more thing that the watch doesn't need and that nobody asked for. I mean, everybody's favorite whipping boy for, uh, you know, for that is, is the date window, obviously. But there, it's and not the GMT just the hand. Right. It's like those two things. It's like out of date window, out of GMT hands. And you're like, neither of those are really needed here. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you mentioned Masana Lab, and we're, we're going to have to wrap in just a few minutes, but I want to make sure we talk about that. Can you, can you tell people what Masana Lab is? Um, so Masana Lab is it's kind of me being a, a thing of me as a music producer with watchers. I do things independently, like a Mark Rosson, basically. I go to brands and I say, hey, what if we did this together? Uh, do, you, do you like this idea? And uh, that, that, that's the original thing. The, the lab is basically collaboration, uh, laboratory, label, whatever you want to name it. Um, but the idea is I don't want, it's not really a brand. It's more me doing things that I like and making watch that I like. Uh, so I, I was kind of, uh, surprised by the success of the first one. I thought it'd take me three or four months or five months to sell all 50 watches and we sold them really quick. Uh, but I, I'm trying to do a, a watch once a year maybe and, and do things that I like, uh, with brands that I like. Yeah. Or people so, I like, actually. And the first watch was, was with Habering, right? Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Richard is a great guy. I mean, if, if people follow Richard, he worked with Lange. He's, uh, most of the stuff that came from the, uh, the good stuff that came from IWC is Richard. He was, the, he was the architect of the IWC uh, Doppelkerno. And the, uh, and the uh, um, uh, Deep One. And, and the Deep One. The Deep One was his, too. Uh, Richard is a great guy, and I really want to work with him. And it was Richard and Maria are great people to work with. Uh, and that was great. And I, and I can see that now working with other people that I was blessed with my first, um, with my first project. Yeah. Yeah, we covered it on the site. We'll make sure to, yeah. uh, to link that up. You know, uh, talking to you, William, it bring, it's brought back a lot of memories, and in, if, in no particular order and for no particular reason, there are a couple that, uh, Stephen, I hope we have time for me to, uh, you know, just share a couple of these. Yeah, we got, we got a couple minutes, and then we'll, we'll do our questionnaire and wrap things up. We birds, got five minutes. Bird, birds without a branch. Um, yeah. uh, one of them is, I remember my very first uh, watch dinner. Uh, it was in New York in 2000 when Uli Snowden launched The Freak and Rolf Schneider, uh, who, like so many other you know, architects of the new watch, uh, the watch renaissance, you know, a lot of people have forgotten. Uh, Mr. Rolf Schneider, uh, who bought Uli Snowden when there were two employees left, came to New York to launch The Freak. And uh, he brought with him the Jungle Minute repeater, um, Genghis Khan. the Genghis Khan. Uh, and, you know, I mean, <clears throat> we were... Uh, awed and amazed to see these things and you know and I was in graduate school um, but again the speak that like the good thing about the watch internet is that it's it's democratic um, and I was invited to this dinner um, by dr. Thomas Mao uh, you know just because he knew that I'd be into it which was sort of an amazing thing and I, I like to think that uh, you know on a certain level one of the enduring benefits of the watch internet is that it actually has made it possible for people who can't necessarily afford the price of entry as an owner just yet to um, to be part of this community you know, which is pretty terrific. Yeah. So we're going to have to start wrapping things up. Sure. Uh, we had probably, I don't know, 25 other things I wanted to cover here, but I have a funny feeling we're going to have you back on the show. So we'll, uh, we'll make sure to cover those next time. We only got to about 2006. Yeah, that's true. We did actually. (laughs) Um, 
but we're going to do our, our Hodinky questionnaire, questions sure. we ask everybody, uh, and then we'll finish with cultural recommendations and uh, get you get you out of here. Um, so to kick things off, uh, what's a watch that's caught your eye recently? A watch that caught my eye recently? Um, you mean a Basel or SIHH? Yeah, just something you saw that, uh, that caught your eye. Um, I cannot think of one watch that I like. <laughs> I guess that tells us more than uh, you picking of, one. It's kind of sad, but there's, you know, usually I go out of a show, uh, SHH or a Basel, and I'm like, I'm going to buy this. Yeah. And uh, this year was the first year where I I haven't. That's, uh, that's I'm going to bribe somebody to make that your epitaph. I cannot think of one watch that I like. Uh, I mean, I'm buying watches, but it's not things I'm, that just came out. Okay. Oh, uh, yeah. Question number two, uh, what's the best place you've traveled in the last year? In the last year, um, uh, Buenos Aires. Buenos mm. Aires, good yes. answer. I loved it. It's, um, if you've been, because... I, I, I haven't, no. Uh, so Buenos Aires is kind of like Paris meets Barcelona meets Milan. That sounds uh, great. It has that, yeah, it has that, it has a lot of European vibe. Um, and I liked it. I was there a few days with my wife and we loved it. Uh, people were nice food was good there's a lot of sightseeing it was nice not a lot of nice museum but a lot of sightseeing great what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given and who gave it to you um best piece of advice I, I there's a quote that I use usually is uh, Bertolt Brecht you know the, yeah. the the German playwright yeah and it's I think in a letter to a friend he, he wrote that um a man without a passport is a dog. Yeah. And I and I believe this. Uh, every time I cross a border, I think of that quote. I love that. I a man without a passport is a dog. And whether you you're stateless and it's condition, you know, it's a human condition that you don't have a passport, or that you are a wealthy guy who has never left your country, I think both guys are dogs in certain ways. And uh, I remind myself how lucky I am not to be one. Perfect. And then uh, the last thing, what's your guilty pleasure? Food. Uh, anybody who has met me is like food. Uh, <laughs> I love food. I'm, uh, yeah, food. Yes. So, um, so what's one restaurant everybody should go try? I, recently, I went to Le Cuckoo. Yeah. Uh, have you been? Yeah. It's right near the office, actually. Yes, it's, it's a great restaurant. It's amazing. Uh, I love Le Cuckoo in New York. Uh, I'm looking forward to trying... Um, Shy Crown Shy or Shy Crown who had a great review on um, on the New York Times last week uh, but yes restaurants food is uh, that what, what will kill me most most probably yes best pizza in Geneva uh, Da Paolo mm. good call you heard it here folks there we go uh, don't go because <laughs> 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 but Da Paolo is some place I've been going since I'm 10 years old uh, since boarding school yeah Da Paolo nice yeah Cool. So, final thing, cultural recommendations. What is something you recommend people go check out when they're done with the show? So, uh, I knew you were going to ask that one, actually, uh, because I listen to We have a listener. Your... That's perfect. I love that. <laughs> I listen to your podcast, so I can prepare with that one. And it's a place I've been last month. It's the MoCA in LA, the Museum of Contemporary Art. Yeah. And I really enjoyed it. Uh, they have worth, a room with like six Rothko, yeah. uh, which was great. Uh and, they, and then I went to the Geffen side, which I thought was uh, very interesting. So I will, it lives kind of uh, on the shadow of the board, 
but I kind of enjoyed the mocha more than uh, than the board. We're gonna have to do an entire Rothko cast, just you and me. We can just sit and talk about Rothko. Oh, for an I would hour. love that. Perfect. Yeah. Jack, what's your uh, what's your cultural recommendation this week? Uh, so it's a book. Um, <clears throat> I've uh, heard the name of A.J. Liebling, you know, for years and years and years, and I've read like I think like a lot of us have, uh, you know, snippets of uh, a lot of the stuff that he's written. A uh, very famous columnist for the New Yorker, and he covered a lot of things. He covered he covered the war, World War II. Uh, he was a very famous uh, food writer. Um, someone whose appreciation for the finer things in life, I think you, William, would would, would really connect with. Uh, but he was also very famous as a boxing writer, and I've never been particularly a boxing fan, but uh, he wrote a book towards the end of his life called The Sweet Science, uh, which was about, um, was about boxing and about boxers and about how the boxing community was changed by the appearance of television, uh, which he felt did not improve things in the boxing world because it basically killed boxing clubs and it killed the experience of seeing boxing in person, uh, took away the sort of tribal aspect of it. And it was one of those books I think it's really healthy for a writer to read every once in a while because even though it's not something I'm personally all that interested in, the writing is so good and the storytelling is so good, it makes you step back a little bit and realize that what we do is really a craft. And uh, that if you do it really, really well, the craft becomes transparent to what you're writing about, and it makes you see uh, parts of the world in a way you didn't think they could be seen. And uh, I just, I can't recommend it highly enough. Um, I think he's he's one of those people who within certain circles is remembered and appreciated, but I, I, I wish were more widely, widely read. Uh, and what is that book called again? Uh, the Sweet Science. The Sweet Science. Being punched in the face repeatedly, eh, not so sweet. But, uh, you know, the science aspect is nice. But it's an art form, too. It is. It is. Are you a boxing enthusiast? No, but (laughs) (laughs) I can recognize art when I see it. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'm going to recommend something that's not new, but that I discovered recently, which is uh, Rolling Stone magazine has a, I guess at this point you can call it tradition of doing lists. Uh, some of which are ambitious to the point of being silly, um, you know, ranking every song ever put out by the Beatles, for example, um, you know, numerically arguing why one is better than the next um, to the point of, of it really becoming folly. But that's crazy. The list that tops all other lists for me from them is uh, they put out a list of the 500 best songs ever uh, and essentially it it's all 20th century and 21st century music it's it's not classical music it's essentially popular contemporary music um and uh, it's insane do you, and like do you remember which was at the bottom of the list and which one was at the top top I, is like a rolling stone it is like a rolling stone yes um and it's an incredible list and it's you read it and you find yourself getting excited when you see songs that you love and frustrated when you see songs that you don't love and wondering when that song that you think is monumental is going to appear and when it doesn't you want to you know throw your computer across the room but it's it's incredible and it's a ridiculous project for them to have even taken on and i found all kinds of music that i had at one point heard and in many cases at one point loved and just hadn't listened to in years uh and just my wife and I the other day were going through it and just putting things on the Sonos. And it was an extremely fun activity. Uh, and I, I recommend sit down with your phone in hand and as you find songs you like, put them on as you keep reading the list and just sort of cycle through things. Uh, and it's it's a fun way to sort of rediscover how 
rich and varied and interesting and fun the last, you know, let's say 75 or 80 years of music can can be. Uh, I really, really enjoyed it. They have all of them as a Spotify playlist, uh, which we'll link up here, uh, which is great. So you can actually, if you want to listen to all 500 songs or most of them, I think a handful aren't on Spotify. Um, but yeah, that's my recommendation this week. Can I make a William Messina comment Please. about this? I, I, I know the list. I like the list. Yeah. But it's so English oriented. It's oh, like, for sure. There's, I, I don't think there's more than five non-English language song on the list. For sure. Uh, no, it's... Oh, it's okay. Yeah. yeah, I mean, think of Jacques Brel, Edith Piaf, just the French and then the Italians and the, For the sure. Africans. And it's. Yeah, uh, I would say they say it's the 500 greatest songs of all time. I would say it's the 500 greatest songs in English written yeah. since 1925. Yeah. You know, wait, wait, guys, guys, how, how far down is Bohemian Rhapsody? I don't remember. It's not crazy far. It's top 100. Yeah, for, for sure. sure. Yeah. I don't remember where the bottom 500 is, I'm gonna but have it's a famous song. About that. I can't remember what number 500 is, but it is a famous song. I remember yeah. getting to 500 and, and laughing. Um, but, but it's, it's great. very English. I mean, English language. In English yeah. language, yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, I, guys. I really think this could have been like a four-hour episode, so... Uh, we'll do it again. Yeah, we'll do it again for sure. This week's episode was recorded at Miratone Studios in New York City and was produced and edited by Grayson Corhonan. Please remember to subscribe and rate the show. It really does make a difference for us. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.